Good evening once again. Again, I'd like to repeat, it's, it's great to see Bantu getting baptized. Uh, it's been good to see her journey. Um, and now as we come to God's word, we will actually be reminded of something about her faith and the faith that you and I uh, hold to. If you're new, well, welcome to Christ Church Midrand. My name is Reggie, one of the ministers here. Tonight we are actually wrapping off our time in, in, in Romans. We had gone back to it for a little while. Uh, but we're wrapping it off next week. We will have Outreach Week, as we heard earlier, uh, and the week after. Then we have an exciting series, uh, a topical series, uh, straight after Outreach Week, which should be exciting with a few of our preachers here in the church. Now, uh, I'd just like to let you know, uh, if you're new, uh, that we have a brilliant summary here uh, for Romans, which will be right behind me. This summary will help you understand what the book is all about. Now tonight what I will do for us is I'll first, read, uh, I'll first read the Bible passage for us and then straight after I will use the summary as a prayer. We'll read from verse 1 all the way up to verse 12 of chapter 4. Listen to God's word from Romans. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom God will not count his sin. Is this blessing then for the circumcised only, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was after. It was not after. But before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who, not only merely, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let me use these words of our summary as a prayer for us. Our father, we see in Romans how you are gathering to yourself a new humanity under Jesus as king. Jesus, whom we saw last week, came to live the life that we couldn't, but was ultimately are crucified on the cross for our behalf. And so, Lord, we know because of his faithful death for those who believe in him, we can be counted as being right by you. We know that his death removes our, uh, our sin and brings back your favor. We know that his death removes your anger or deals with your anger. But we know that his death also ransoms us from a life of slavery. So as we come to your words tonight, would you help us by faith to put our trust in that very work, 
so that we would live as your people, empowered by the Spirit to be agents of change in this broken world as we await the renewal and restoration of our bodies in that of the world. Amen. Now, how many of you here tonight need some encouragement? I don't see any hands up. Come on, I'm putting two up. How many of you need some encouragement? See, I think a lot of us need some encouragement tonight, don't we? We need that. Now, I don't necessarily know why you might need encouragement. I mean, I know why I need encouragement. But perhaps the reason why you feel like you need encouragement is because you, you don't actually believe that a good God could love someone like you. Well, if that's you tonight, Romans 4 is for you. Let me say that again. If that's you tonight, Romans 4 is for you. Or perhaps you are here tonight and you feel like you can't move past your past failures, mistakes, or struggles. See, if that's you, Romans 4 is for you. Or perhaps you are here tonight and you feel like in your relationship with God, it feels as though you take one step forward and two steps back. Or perhaps you're here and you're unsure that you're forgiven. Or maybe you just struggle to love other people, other Christians. You just struggle with that. You, you would be the person, if you remember from a few weeks ago, whose words are poisonous. You would be the person whose actions lack empathy. Well, if that's you tonight, you are in good company. I'm sure you saw the hands of the people who, who raised up their hands. You are in good company because Romans is a book, and particularly Romans 4, is a chapter for us. It is a chapter for you. Now, this sounds like incredible news, doesn't it? It sounds like incredible news. It's terrific news. But I'm aware that whenever you and I, you and I hear such good news, often we get tempted or we are tempted to become skeptical. This sounds too good to be true. It sounds too good to be true. It, it sounds like that business proposal that you get from someone who walks up to you on the street and says, can you come and help us offload some boxes? And you get handsomely paid. And now most of you know what happens with the rest of that story. Uh, you are the business proposal, or you're the business plan for the person. And, and I think often we often feel like that about God's goodness. We, we, we feel like when we hear this, it sounds like one of those moments when someone might pull the rug from under us. Is it really like this? Is it really like this? If it's good news, it just sounds too good to be true. Surely if there is a God, a God who gathers people to himself by giving up his son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice, as a sacrifice that takes away judgment, a sacrifice that brings us into relationship with God and actually moves us away from our slavery to sin. Surely if there's a God like this, this kind of God would expect something from us, right? Surely if there's a God like that, he would expect something from us. This good news, this gospel just can't be that good. It can't be that good. Nothing is for Mahala, as the South African movie says. So come on, Reggie. Come out with it already. What's in the fine print? Tell me. What's in the fine print? I know that they're hidden T's, T's and C's. So tell, them, so tell me about them. Tell me about them so that I know that I'm not being duped or deceived. See, I think if we are honest, 
If we are honest with ourselves, we would admit that you and I have moments when we think this about God and his good news. We just think it's too good to be true. Well, Paul in our passage today will show us that this news is actually not just good, but it is beyond what you and I could ever ask or dare to dream about. It is beyond our wildest dream. It is beyond our wildest dreams because it is God's free offer to all. It is God's free offer to all, a free gift that is received by faith. And that there will actually be our point for today. One point, faith. That's what we'll talk about today. And this one point will have two sub-points, which I will give to you a little bit later. Now, as we go into this one point, let me remind you what we said last week. There's a particular quote that we said as we ended off our time together. And this quote said this about faith. The quote will be right behind me. Listen to these words um, from Tim Keller. It is not faith that saves. Rather, it is faith or trust in Jesus, particularly in the faithfulness of Jesus. It is not faith on its own. Rather, it is faith on Jesus as the object of our faith that saves. Jesus and his faithfulness. Now, Paul, as he writes this chapter, wants these Christians to know exactly this. And so he begins to explain the role of faith in in the relationship between God and his people. Now, what Paul does here is he points out to a few Old Covenant or Old Testament people who had a relationship of faith with God. And the people whom he points out to are mentioned just in a short while. There are three people in this chapter, two people in this chapter, and one a little bit later in Romans. These people whom he uses as illustrations or examples of what faith looks like, a relationship of faith with God. But what Paul also shows us is the implications of having a relationship of faith with God, the implications of relating to God in this way. So here are the two sub-points under our one-point faith. These are two sub-points, illustrations and implications. Illustrations, which means, which means examples, and implications. So let's go to our very first thing, illustrations. Now, the three characters I've just said that Paul mentions here, I'm sure you noticed as I read through the passage, two of them. One is Abraham, and the other is David. The third character that he mentions in the book of Romans is actually Moses in chapter 10, who says a very similar thing to David and Moses, who has a similar kind of relationship with God that Abraham and David had. It's amazing that actually Paul, in this section, chooses three people whom the Israelites adored, three people whom they knew of their relationship with God. It's as though he calls out three experts or specialists in a field to have a conversation. So imagine this, you had a court uh, court case, and someone calls out three people who are the foremost specialists in whatever is being discussed. You know that this person will make a good argument. Or or you could think of a conversation, a debate. Uh, I know a few people here like a particular kind of music called the Yanos, which I'm not really a fan of. I know a number of people like them. But let's think about this. You're having a conversation with someone. Who are the three, four most people you would call to that conversation? Gabza, maybe? Maporisa? Heavy K? Uh, who else would you call? Simba. If you call out three, those three people, you know those three people will make a good argument of what is to be said. Or if you are among the older or mature class tonight, perhaps you like classical music. 
If you like classical music, imagine someone calling out Mozart, Beethoven, and the last one whom I like, Morricone, who's brilliant. If you've heard Morricone, Morricone is brilliant. If someone calls those three people, you know they're about to make a good argument. And this is what Paul does. Three people. And he points to the kind of relationship that they had with God. But particularly here, he focuses on Abraham. And there's a reason why he focuses on Abraham. And we will see that. So let's look at Abraham as an illustration. And I'll read for us once again. Chapter 4, from verse 1 to verse 5. And then I'll pick it up from verse 9 to verse 12 once again. Listen to the reading of God's word. What then shall we say was gained by our forefather, Abraham, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Now let's pick it up in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the uncircumcised? Or also for, for the circumcised, rather, or, only for, or also for the uncircumcised? For we shall say, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was after, but not before he was circumcised. You see what Paul points us to there? He points us to this character, Abraham, and he uses him as the father of all who believe in God. All. This is the argument he's trying to make. Abraham is the father of the Jews because of ancestry, verse 1. He's their father according to the flesh. But he's a father as well, according to circumcision. But we also see from verse 13 onwards, he's their father because the Jewish people had the law. But the argument that Paul wants to make is, actually, Abraham is the father of all who believe in God. Because Abraham had faith in God, before all these things came, before he was circumcised, before there was the law, and before anything else. So Abraham is the father of all. This is the gist or core of the argument that Paul wants to make tonight. And you see, in the story with God, the story of God and Abraham, which we see from verse 13, this man formerly known as Abraham, what we see in that story is that God chooses Abraham. It is God who moves towards him in grace. Abraham does not decide, or Abraham does not decide to choose God. Rather, it is God who moves towards him in grace. And enters into a relationship with him when Abram could not offer God anything. So you read Genesis 12 and 15 and you realize it is God who makes the promises to make Abram a blessing to the world. And that God will bless him and his family. It is God who moves towards him in grace. And then in Genesis 15, God puts his neck on the line by making a pledge or cutting a covenant here you see, two, you see an animal being sacrificed, and God walks between the animals to show that he will keep his words to bless Abraham. Do you know what Abraham did in all of this? Nothing. Zip. Zero. Zilch. Noto. Noto. Nothing. He did nothing. There's nothing he did. He was a pagan and a heathen. That's what he was. He had no intentions of seeking God or understanding God, as Romans 3 says. No intentions of moving towards God, but God moves towards him. So God is the one who initiates the relationship with Abraham. 
so that Abraham would not come to God and say, I have brought something to the table. He could not. He could not bring anything to the table so that he goes to God and says, Wonkutiko independent, let's go. He could not say that to God at all. He could not. It is God who moves towards him in grace. And so this relationship God makes with Abraham is a relationship that is rooted in God's kindness and generosity when Abraham did nothing, did nothing to deserve God's kindness. All he did was to trust God. That's all he did. He trusted God. When God said, go to the land I will show you, he trusted God. All he did was to hang on on the very words of God, on the faithfulness of God. And in Genesis, we are told, because he entrusted himself to the faithfulness of God, God declared him, God counted him as being right with him. And this all happened before he was circumcised in Genesis 17. See, circumcision was simply a seal or a sign of his trust in the promises of God, in the covenant of God. Just as we said today, Bandu entrusted herself to the promises of God, the faithfulness of God. Baptism is a sign of that very work that God has done, his covenant. That's what Bandu has entrusted herself to. And so Paul here wants us to see that God's relationship with people, with humanity, has always been a relationship of faith. See, faith, for lack of a better word, is the channel or the bridge between our relationship with God. God does not expect anything of us but to trust him. And so you could say Abraham is the prototype. He's the blueprint. He's the first model. See, every other relationship everyone has with God is modeled after this. If you know first, first models of anything, I'm a big fan of, oh, my phone is there. I'm a big fan of what people call the fruit, uh, this phone called the fruit, and that uh, it's a phone that never really gets better features. They just make it bigger, but you still buy it. That's how much I love them. But I remember watching the movie with Steve Jobs, and you see the first model of their Macintosh, the Macintosh 128K. And what you see there is an, is an ugly computer in one sense. But that computer, the brilliance of it, is that everything thereafter was built from there. Abraham is the first model. He's the blueprint of the kind of relationship God will have with humanity. All that God requires of us is to trust him. I have no idea where you find yourself today. Perhaps you're struggling with so many things in your life. Struggling to figure out whether God is for you, whether God will forgive you. Here's what you need to hear. All God requires of you is to trust him. No seed money. He doesn't require any kind of work from you. He just requires you to trust him. To mirror Abraham, who is the prototype. See, Moses, the person whom the law comes through, and David, who is the king, who actually administers the law. Both of them had this kind of relationship with God. See, all that God requires of us is to entrust ourselves to him, is to trust him and nothing else. Not trust in our own works or trust in anything else in this world. And this is good news. This is good news for people like you and me. People who need to be told, we don't need anything to be made right with God. God says, what you need is nothing. Zip. Zero. Not. Nothing. 
to be made right with him. He offers his gift of salvation as one that is free for all. Listen to this brilliant quote once again from Tim Keller. This is what he says about faith. Faith is not a work that makes one right with God. Rather, faith is a reliance upon another's work. And I've added, as you see there, the faithfulness of Jesus and is a gift from God. Bantu quoted from Ephesians 2 and said, God is actually the one who moves towards us in mercy and grace and causes us to trust him. And actually, even the faith we have is a gift. He causes us to trust him. All that God requires of you is to look to Jesus. That's all he requires. That's the first thing, the illustration. Now let's think about the implication of having this kind of faith in God. What is the implication or implications of having this kind of faith in God? Now, during the week, I actually had three implications you could draw out from this passage. But, but after a while, I realized that these three implications could be seen as one. And you'll see that as we go through the passage together. And this is the implication of having this kind of faith in God. If you trust God, the implication, or what that means is, you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven. It seems obvious, but you can be forgiven, which is what Paul points to from verse 5 to verse 8, and actually from verse 22 to verse 25 that I'll read for us. Let's read those verses again to see this implication of forgiveness towards us. Verse 5 reads as follows, and to the one who does not who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed or happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom God or the Lord will not count his sin. Now, if you can open to verse 22, I'll read from, for us from then on. Verse 22 says, That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for us also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who is raised from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, I'm not sure if you saw as I read those verses that there's a wonderful exchange that happens there. This is the wonderful exchange you see in those verses. One, God does not count our sins against us. Now, let me say that again. Your sin, past, present, future, God does not count it against you if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus. Rather, God counts you as being righteous. A wonderful exchange. God counts us as being righteous. Paul actually uses this word count, or to account, or to credit, or to reckon, a number of times in this chapter, so that we would see that. So that we would see this wonderful exchange. We're no longer counted as those who are sinful, or God does not count our sin against us. Rather, he counts us as being righteous, as being right with him. Listen to these words from one commentator who explains this beautiful exchange that God does for us. So to account to him, and this is Abraham and us, of course, to account to him a righteousness that does not inherently belong to him. 
So this is what God does in this wonderful exchange. He accounts to Abraham and to you and I a righteousness that we do not have, that we do not need to work for. He gives it to us. Listen to this next quote as well from another author who says, To credit someone is to confer a status that was not there before. God gives us this status. Status that was not there before, and he gives it to us freely. And here's the thing about the status. This new status that we have, this updated status, it does not last 24 hours like WhatsApp. It's unchanging. It's an unchanging status that God gives us, an unchanging status that is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. It's guaranteed. It's unchanging. See, the resurrection proves that Jesus is the righteous one and the one who's able to save us because of his faithful work on our behalf. And so we know that our status is unchanging before God. So even in your struggle against sin, hear this. Your status is unchanging before God. God has credited you as one that is right with him. When your bank account was empty, God has filled it up with the righteousness of Jesus. And so family, hear these words from verse 5 to verse 8. We are blessed. We are forgiven. We are free from condemnation. We are free we are free forever. Amen. Amen. We are free. And so this means if you are struggling to get past your past, if you wonder about God's forgiveness for you, if you think God still has a grudge over you, holds a grudge over you, you ought to say to yourself, I have a new status. I have a new status. I have a new status. You ought to say this to yourself. And here's why you and I need to remind ourselves of this truth. You and I need to remind ourselves of this truth because we know it in our heads. But we often don't believe it in our hearts. We often don't feel like we are forgiven. Right? Our emotions get the better of us. Our conscience condemns us. And we find ourselves clouded with guilt. And shame. And so we ought to fight these feelings and emotions with this truth I have a new status, an unchanging status before God. When I think about His love, when I think about what He has done for me, I have no time to maintain these regrets. I have no time to maintain these regrets. You ought to speak these words over yourself, you ought to speak the gospel over yourself. Listen to Milton Vincent in his book, Gospel Prima. And this is what he says. There is simply no way, no way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, the lies of the world and the devil, and the devil than to overwhelm such feelings with daily rehearsings of the gospel. There's no way to overcome them. But by reminding yourself daily of this gospel, I have a new status. I have a new status. By coming back to God's word and reminding yourself of this, there's no way you'll be able to fight your emotions, your guilt, other than this, by coming to this gospel that tells us that we have a new status. And so family, if you want a Christian life that is filled with confidence and assurance, you ought to preach the gospel to yourself. Now, let me ask you, how often do you do that? We think about preaching the gospel to others, but really think about preaching the gospel to ourselves. We ought to preach this to ourselves. You have a new status 
God has made you right with him. And the amazing thing is this. When we do this daily, it will not only get rid of our guilt, but it will also get rid of our pride. It will get rid of our pride. You and I will know that we have no reason to boast before God. We can't. You can't boast before God or anyone else. If it's been given to you freely, you can't boast. And it's been, if it's been given to you freely, you can't look down on others. You can't boast. It's been given to you freely. And here's the opposite, of, opposite side of that. It's if God gives this to us freely, then we can't resent those who have a confidence in the gospel. Because we tend to look at other people and, and wonder how, how is it that they're doing so well in their walk. If we know that what they have is something that they've only received as a gift from God, then we will come before God ourselves as well to receive this very gift. The other thing, it would, it would also mean that you and I don't walk around with this false confidence, or false humility rather. The false humility that grovels and says, look at how bad I am. I'm so bad that God cannot forgive me. Yes, you are bad. But you're not so bad that you are beyond God's act of redemption. You're not. What we should realize in those moments when we say that is we're actually being proud. We're saying what Jesus has done is not enough. But what he did is enough. It is enough. It's enough for me and it's enough for you. So you ought to repeat this to yourself. As I move towards the end, let me say this. You would have heard in the last few weeks that we have said that God does not form just a new person, a new individual. He forms a new humanity. A new humanity. And because we are part of a new humanity, we ought to do the same for others. Because there are many others who are struggling with assurance and confidence in the gospel. So we should always be looking to preach the gospel to them. To remind them of this status. And you see, if we as the people of God gospel our hearts, if we gospel ourselves and gospel others, then we will definitely live out the words of Romans 12 to Romans 15. We will outdo one another in love. I will feel as though I owe you a debt of love. I will look to pay you a debt of love with each day because I want, you, I want to see you moving closer to God. And we will be people that are more forgiving, that live in harmony and peace. And we will live in such a way that our actions do not make someone else stumble. Something else you see uh, a little bit later in Romans. See, justific justification by faith implies fellowship by faith. Justification by faith implies fellowship by faith. You'll be concerned about those who are part of God's faith community. So let me close with these words so that you and I can reorient our hope, our faith in God once again in this coming week. Listen to these words from Fred Zespal. Our whole hope before God is in Jesus. Our hope of acceptance rests wholly on his acceptance. Our hope of vindication in the final judgment rests wholly on his vindication. Our hope is in Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, because Jesus rose as the all-conquering king, we can be sure of our new status. We are forgiven. Let me pray for us. 
Our Father, we do pray that in our struggles with confidence in the gospel, with our struggles and wondering whether you have forgiven us, we pray that we would gospel ourselves so that we would know that this is the way to overcome our emotions, our guilt that often clouds us. Father, help us to come to this gospel and preach it to ourselves and preach this new status to ourselves so that we would begin to live from this place, we would begin to live from a place of forgiveness, not to live towards forgiveness, but to live from this place of forgiveness. And Lord, help us, because we are part of a new humanity, to also gospel and preach this very gospel to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.